Let's pray and ask God to help us understand his word. Almighty God, our loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you've given us your word, the Bible. Thank you that you speak to us through your word. Thank you for what uh, your word tells us today about your apostles and how brave they were. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you'll help us to be inspired and enthused by their example and to recognise more about who you are and your relationship to your church. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in 1963, my hero, Bob Dylan, wrote a song. It was called, With God on Our Side. He talks about how, in war after war, America has claimed to have God on its side. He goes through the slaughter of Native Americans, the Spanish-American Civil War, the strangeness of an American Civil War, whose side has got on there, uh, the First World War, the Second World War, and then into the um, Cold War and the nuclear age. He says uh, that uh, his suggestion is that America claiming to have God on its side in wars, he says, is like Judas Iscariot claiming to have God on his side. And he concludes, if God's really on our side, he'll stop the next war. Well, Dylan wrote 43 years ago, but it's still happening unabated. A recent BBC article by Tom Carver says this, US President George W. Bush firmly believes he has placed his country on God's side by invading Iraq. Bush is quoted as saying, there is a wonder-working power in the goodness and idealism of the American people. Or American General William Boykin was recently quoted. He showed slides of Osama bin Laden and Saddam Hussein and Kim Jong-il. And he said this, We are a Christian nation. We are a Christian army. We come against them in the name of Jesus. Meanwhile, from the other side, we keep hearing the cry of Allah Akbar. God is great. Islamic politicians, terrorists, suicide bombers argue that God is on their side. And Allah Akbar is now a cry that's become closely associated with violence. Recently, a man on an aeroplane flight called out, just an ejaculation of praise to God, called out Allah Akbar. They immediately went into emergency mode and diverted the flight. There were no weapons, no threats, no attempt to hijack the plane, no attempt to instigate violence. All the bloke did was call out, God is great. Whose side is God on? If you read the Herald yesterday, you'd have seen that uh, Peter Garrett and Kevin Rudd are trying to convince us that, in fact, God is not a liberal politician, as we thought all along, but he's actually on the side of Labor. <laughs> Everyone seems to be claiming him. So whose side is God really on? Is God on our side? And what difference does it make to have God on your side? Well, Acts chapter 4 and verse 33, we were briefly told about the activities of Jesus' apostles. They were bearing eyewitness testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. Acts 4.33, uh, it says, With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. 
Now we pick that up again in chapter 5 and verse 12. We're talking about the apostles again. And we see some of the power that they had with which they were testifying to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. What happened? God kept on backing up what they were saying. God kept on accrediting them, saying, what they are saying is what I am saying, backing up their eyewitness testimony by enabling them to do miracles. Acts chapter 5 and verse 12. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. Now, as the apostles taught, as they testified to the resurrection of Jesus, as they did their miracles, it created division. Some people thought, whoa, that's really impressive. That's a little bit scary. And they kept a polite distance. But then on the other, people, on the other hand, many people were convinced. They became Christians at the time. So verse 13. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, same time, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. The apostles, we see them, were doing all kinds of amazing miracles. And so people were coming from far and wide for healing. And notice, they were all healed here. It wasn't one person in a hundred getting some headache relief. With the apostles, it was miraculous healings, 100% success rate. Verse 15. As a result... People brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. They're creating a big stir here. These apostles teaching about Jesus, performing undeniable miracles, and it came to the attention of the authorities. They were jealous, perhaps a bit scared, jealous particularly of the, the influence that the apostles were starting to have and so they round them up and they throw them into jail. Verse 17. Then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. And then at, at that point an amazing thing happens. An angel appears and he somehow enables the apostles to escape without the guards even being aware of it. And the angel sends them back to the temple to keep on talking about Jesus. Verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, We found the jail securely locked, with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were puzzled, wondering what would come of this. Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts, teaching the people. When the authorities realised, they, they round them up again, only this time they're pretty careful about it. They don't want to start a riot. Verse 26. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. 
They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. So the apostles appear before the authorities. The high priest charges them effectively with civil dis disobedience. He said, look, we're, we're the boss. We told you to stop teaching about Jesus. You're disobeying clear orders. And of course, what they were teaching about Jesus, that the Jewish authorities had killed him, that wasn't exactly pleasing to them either. And so verse 27. Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. The apostles say, well, you're not the highest authority. God is a higher authority than you are. We're going to obey him, not you. And then they go right ahead and straight to their faces tell exactly the same message again. Extraordinary brave, really. They say, you killed Jesus. You did do it. But God raised him from the dead. You cursed him by hanging him on a tree. But God blessed and exalted him as your boss and your only possible saviour. They say, now you need to repent. You, the Jewish authorities, need to change your minds and agree with us. Galilean fishermen about Jesus and who he is. You need to submit to Jesus. You need to change your mind about him. And if you do, the apostles say, you too can be forgiven. Verse 29. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and saviour, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. And then once again they present their evidence. They say, we ourselves saw it. With our own eyes, we are eyewitnesses. And now God himself is bearing witness by giving the Holy Spirit, by enabling us to do these miracles, by changing the lives of the thousands of people whose lives you are seeing changed among your people. Verse 32. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Well, the Sanhedrin unimpressed. They want the apostles dead. But a bloke called Gamaliel stands up and he counsels moderation. He says basically, if this Jesus thing is a human thing, it'll soon fade away. Jesus himself, he's dead and gone. Soon, you've got to expect, his influence will be gone. It's like, uh, was it one that showed you the cartoon the other day of the, the, the loony cartoon of the, the Roman centurion? They've got Jesus up on the cross, the apostles are all looking devastated and, and the centurion says to the other Roman, isn't it fantastic? You put the leader to death, you finish the whole movement. That's what you expect. You expect Jesus' influence will soon be gone, but, but Gamaliel says the thing is, if this is of God, you don't want to be opposing it. Then you will be fighting against God himself, and that is not a fight that you're going to win. So verse 33. 
when they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honoured by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed them. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theodos appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. Now, I'm not convinced that Gamaliel's advice here is necessary, necessarily correct in every case. In this world, there are plenty of things that succeed that are not of God. You only need to look at Islam. But still, it is wise advice. By rights, if you kill a bloke, you should put an end to the religious movement that he's starting. And it could well have been counterproductive for them to make martyrs out of the apostles. And in this particular case, what Gamaliel says is absolutely correct. God, God has indeed raised Jesus from the dead. God is, in fact, at work in the Christian movement. If you oppose God's church, then you do oppose God himself. Anyway, right or wrong, Gamaliel's advice wins the day. They don't kill the apostles. Instead, they flog them for disobeying the clear order not to preach about Jesus. They say, stop talking about him, and then they let them go, set them free. Verse 40. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And the passage then finishes by telling us about how the apostles responded. They responded to their suffering well, in an extraordinary way, really, by rejoicing at the privilege of suffering for the Lord Jesus. And they responded to the orders of the authorities with just blatant disobedience. They obeyed God rather than men. They would not keep silent. They kept on telling the news that Jesus is, in fact, the king. Verse 41. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ, the King. They're so brave, aren't they? You'd hardly recognise the scared little rabbits who, who scattered off like little cockroaches or something when, uh, when Jesus was crucified. These blokes have been totally transformed. By what? Only, I think, by what they've seen, the resurrection of Christ, what they've been given, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, now as, we, as we try to think about what this passage means for us, we need to remember again, we are not the apostles. We are not actual eyewitnesses of Jesus. I'm not aware of anyone today with a similar 100% healing power like the apostles had. 
Acts chapter 5 is describing a unique situation that happened in the early church. And so we've got to be careful about taking what happened and saying that it must necessarily happen today. We've got to be careful about the way we apply what happened then to ourselves today. But still this passage does have plenty to say to us, even though we're not the apostles. First, first this passage gives what I think is, is thoroughly convincing evidence about Jesus. In fact, it's passages like this that convince me to be a Christian. First, first, there are the miracles. Jesus' apostles could do amazing miracles. Miracles that convinced many people that their testimony about Jesus was, was true. People who were there. People who could check out the veracity of the miracles. The, the miracles were even brought to the attention of the authorities. They did their best, I'm sure, to, to, to show that the miracles were false, but it seems they couldn't do it. They couldn't refute the miracles. All they could do was just tell them to shut up. And then, and then I think this is really convincing, then there is the testimony of Jesus' apostles. The, their eyewitness testimony about his resurrection. We see here how even in the face of persecution, their testimony stood firm. That is pretty powerful. Some of you may have heard of Charles Colson. Charles Colson was a man who worked for the American president, Richard Nixon. And Colson was put in jail over the whole Watergate scandal. And during the course of it all, he became a Christian. And he makes a fascinating comparison between what happened at Watergate when they decided to get together and, and, and hold firm about a lie with what happened with the apostles. Let me quote at length from a speech by Charles Colson. Let me tell you, as one who was inside the White House in 1972, the 12 most powerful men in America gathered around the President of the United States and began the great scandal known as Watergate. One day, one of the men involved, John Dean, walked into the office of the President of the United States and said, Mr. President, there is a cancer on your presidency. And for the first time on March the 21st, 1973, he laid out for us everything he knew about the Watergate scandal. He let us know for the first time that the President of the United States could be involved in a criminal conspiracy. In less than two weeks, by his own account, he went to the prosecutors to bargain for immunity. As he wrote later in his memoirs, it was not to save the Constitution, but to save his own skin. In spite of all that enormous power, the Watergate cover-up conspiracy only lasted two weeks. When John Dean went to the prosecutors to bargain for immunity, for all practical purposes, Mr Nixon's presidency was doomed. After that, every other aide went out to save his own skin. Imagine the 12 most powerful men in the United States sitting around a desk of the President of the United States and they couldn't keep a lie together for more than three weeks. You're going to tell me the 12 apostles lied for 40 years. They were beaten, persecuted, thrown into jail. All except one lost their lives dying a martyr's death, yet they never once renounced the fact that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. That's humanly impossible unless, in fact, they had seen Jesus. Otherwise, there would have been a John Dean in their midst who turned government evidence. The Apostle Peter had already done that. Once, no, 
No, three times. The fact of the matter is, my friends, that men will give their lives for something they believe to be true. Muslim terrorists do it with terrifying frequency. But a man will never give his life for something he knows to be false. The apostles, who were first-hand eyewitnesses, knew what they had seen. And they never would have given their lives if they had not believed what they had seen, what they had seen to be true. Well, that's here again in Acts chapter 5, isn't it? The, apo- the apostles are imprisoned, they're flogged, they're threatened, threatened with death, and yet not one of them caves in. There's not one of them saying, Oh, sorry, sorry, just uh, all a joke. Hold off with the whip, will you please? No way. They just say, that's what we saw. That's what we saw. God has raised Jesus, the Jesus you crucified, to life again. We saw it with our own eyes. God has lifted him up. He's the king. He's the saviour. Do what you want. It's just the truth. I reckon that is compelling evidence. It convinces me, Acts chapter 5 convinces me, that Jesus really is risen from the dead, really is alive, really is my king, my saviour, your king, your saviour. Just like the apostles said. But the other thing about Acts chapter 5 is this. It shows us very clearly whose side God is on. You can see it in, in a contrast that keeps being drawn right through the chapter between man and God. So whose side is God on? First and foremost, God is on Jesus' side. Men killed Jesus, but God raised him from the dead. Men cursed Jesus, but God lifted him up as prince and saviour that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins. God is on Jesus' side. And so, second, God is on the side of Jesus' apostles, his personally accredited eyewitnesses. As the apostles bore their spirit-empowered testimony about Jesus, God was powerfully on their side, proving it by enabling them to do all those miracles. And then, third, God is on the side of his spirit-filled people. As we live in obedience to Jesus, as we commend the gospel about Jesus, as we, verse 29, obey God rather than men, God is on our side. And so, back to chapter 5 and verse 4, as we saw last week, if you lie to God's spirit-filled church, you lie to God, not men. As we've seen today, chapter 5, verse 39, if you try to stop the church from sharing the message about Jesus, you're fighting against God, not men. God is on Jesus' side. God is bringing everything and everyone under Jesus as king. The day will come when every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. God is on Jesus' side. If you're on that side, God is with you. God is on your side. If you're living with Jesus as your Lord, if you're obeying God and not men, God is on your side. Now, now that doesn't mean that we should go out and wage war on anyone. 
I don't see any justification for holy war here in this chapter. It's not to say there's no biblical warrant for war. It's just not here. Uh, what is here is justification, I think, of, for holy suffering. Uh, nor does this passage tell us to vote Liberal or Labor. Having God on our side does not mean that we should be rude or arrogant. It doesn't make us better than anyone else. It doesn't make us smarter than anyone else. But what it does mean is this. As God's people, filled with the same Holy Spirit as the apostles, we, like them, need to obey God and not men. We should bravely live for Jesus and we should bravely keep on with their job of telling other people about Jesus. And don't get me wrong, I'm not guaranteeing that everything will go well for you when you live with God on your side. As we share the message about Jesus, it'll still cause divided reactions, like in Acts chapter 5 here. Some people are still going to politely ignore us, like in verse 13. Some people will join us, like in verse 14. And some people will hate us and despise us, like in the rest of the chapter. Living seriously for Jesus, living noisily for Jesus, living not silently for Jesus, may well mean being unpopular, may well mean suffering. But we need to remember which side God is on. And we need to start fearing God more than we fear people. Because that, I think, is the essence of our problem. We are more concerned about what people think of us than we are concerned about what God thinks of us. That's why we're silent. We need to crave God's acceptance more than the acceptance of our peers. We need to crave God's acceptance more than the acceptance of our families. Have you invited anyone to Open Week yet? I know you've got a long list of excuses. The neighbours aren't Christians. The people around you at the golf club, you know, they don't really listen. The people at work, oh, they're all, you know, quite cynical. I reckon you're just scared. I reckon you're scared of what people will think of you. I know I am. Who should we really be scared of? Who should we really be obeying? God has raised Jesus to life. God has declared Jesus to be king and saviour. God commands all people everywhere to repent and put their faith in Jesus. If we do, God promises to forgive us. If we do, God promises to come and be with us by his spirit. God is on Jesus' side. God is on the side of the people who will bravely live for Jesus and commend his gospel. Let's not fight against God. Let's not disobey God by being scared and silent. No, no. Like the apostles in Acts chapter 5, let's serve Jesus and let's bravely tell other people about him. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we are so sorry for the way that we are silent about you, for the way we so often fail to stand up and stand out as Christians. Lord, as we look at the extraordinary bravery of these apostles, filled with the same spirit that we're filled with, with the same message that, that we have, Lord, we are put to shame in so many ways. Lord, thank you that we are saved purely by your grace, not by our bravery. Thank you that we're saved by Jesus, not by us. But Father, we pray that you help us to respond to your love and the salvation we have by obeying you and not men, by fearing you and not men, by serving you above all others. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.